Hey guys! <clears throat> hey guys, welcome to Telling the Told and Untold. My name is Tiho. So today's case is the second episode of the Profiler Diaries and it's titled The Pori Murder Series. On the 13th of January 2002, the body of an unidentified black woman was found. She was found laying face down. She was completely naked and she showed signs of severe decomposition. Her body had maggots in it and she also had dark black marks on her skin. Her cause of death could not be determined. On the 22nd of April, the next body was found. This woman was also found completely naked and her cause of death was blunt force trauma to her head. On the 13th of June, the third body was found. This woman was found floating in a small river. She was naked below the waist, but was found with a green jersey on that was, that was lifted above her breasts. She had neatly braided hair and she had pink nail polish on both her hands and her feet. Her cause of death was blunt force trauma and because she was in the water and was being eaten away by the animals in the water she couldn't be identified. A couple of days later on the 21st of June another body was found in the same river. This woman was found wearing black pants and she had two green jerseys on. They found mirazapine in her body which is usually used for depression and lidocaine which is a topical local anesthetic and her cause of death was directed trauma to her liver. The fifth and last body to be found in 2002 was found on the 2nd of September and she too was found floating in the river like the two previous victims. She was found about 50 meters away from the last victim and this case was a bit different because she was found um, in shallow water. This water was about 30 centimeters deep and on either side of her there was a place for her body to be hidden so on one side it was like the wall dam where her body could have easily like never been found or would have been found wouldn't have been found for a couple of weeks or months and on the other side of her were cement tunnels where um, the water for the river would flow under the highway this woman was found wearing a colorful vest like top as well as bright red pants and her nails were also painted bright red. She was also found with a massive rock on the back of her torso and it also covered a bit of her right upper arm. The woman also suffered no genital injuries and her then explains that this isn't uncommon for adult rape victims which I thought was interesting for there to not be any genital instruments. She was also menstruating at the time of her death and because of like these two factors um, I assume that the forensic pathologist didn't want to do um, a genital swab because like because of those reasons but then the investigative officers that were there did ask her to do the DNA swab just in case they would find something and this would prove to be vital towards the end of the case. After this Herod then explained the psychological profiling that happens. The first thing is that the woman was found 50 meters away from the previous victim. Um, she was found with a massive rock on her. The water wasn't that deep, it was only about 30 centimeters deep, which really isn't that much. 
on either side of her her body could have easily been hidden and she was wearing bright red pants so Clara says because of these factors they assume that the suspect wanted her to be found because she could have easily been seen from the highway or someone just like walking past and looking down and he says the two main reasons that the victim was placed where she was and where she could easily be found is number one maybe um the suspect wanted to be there when the police officers find the body and to see how they go on about like how they go about like taping up the scene where they put the body just things like that maybe just to see their investigative skills or the second reason was that he thought they were taking too long to find the body so he just wanted it wanted to make it easier for them. I hope that makes sense. So he just wanted it to be easier for them to find the bodies. So after the fifth body is found, nothing happens for about four years. So there are three main reasons why a serial killer stops killing. The first one, which seems like the most obvious one, is that they died, which is why the killings obviously stopped. The second one is that they were incarcerated for a completely different crime and they weren't related to the crimes that were currently happening. And the third reason is because something significant happened in their lives. So for example, um, there's an episode in Criminal Minds where there was a serial murderer going around and then he stopped killing for a really long time, I think about a decade. And then eventually he started killing again. So they assumed that maybe it was just a copycat killer. But later on they found out it was the same man. And the reason why he stopped killing for such an extended period of time is because he got married and he had a child. So these two things took like completely took away his time to do these killings and after a couple of years when his child was older and could probably just like take care of themselves more that's when the killings started up again so now it's january 2006 and detective warrant officer buti baloyi has two dockets of women that were found murdered and completely naked in a quarry so he took this to i think Harriet's team to tell them about these two bodies and he thought that they might be related and it could possibly be a serial killer he didn't know about the killings that had happened in 2002 but all the but all the other officers did so because of this they thought that the crimes could have been related the two bodies were found in an open pit quarry in a township i don't know how to pronounce the township name so i'll just put it like here um and it was along the r55 also the bodies had been found only 2.8 kilometers away from where the other previous bodies had been found in 2002 the first body to be found in 2006 was found on the 2nd of january it was a black woman that was found um, floating in the same river as the previous victims in 2002. Her cause of death was manual strangulation as well as blunt trauma to her chest. She was unidentified and because she had been in the water for an extended period of time, the animals in the water did start eating away at her features. But the SAPS forensic artist did um, make a couple of sketches that they put in a couple of townships to try and identify her but she has never been identified to this day. 
A couple of days later, on the 8th of January, the second body was found. She too was found completely naked, but she was found in a fault. Um, she was very decomposed, but they did manage to make artistic recreations of her that um, they did spread around to try and identify her. No DNA evidence was found on her, and she too couldn't be identified. The investigation continued and then a month later on the 27th of February, the third victim is found. She too was found floating in the same river, but her body was found like close to the dam wall, not the same one from the victims in 2002. So I'm assuming that this river had like two different dam walls and um, she was, it's like two dam walls but the same river, so then she just floated to the other damn wall, not the same damn wall. I hope that makes sense. I think I'm making sense. The victim wore a blouse, but she had no underwear on. Her cause of death was identified as um, fresh water drowning and also signs of strangulation. They also created artistic um, drawings of her to try and identify her, but she too was never identified. On the 21st of April, the bodies of victim 4 and 5 were discovered within walking distance of each other. Victim 4 was found naked except for a denim skirt which was bunched up around her waist. She was quite decomposed and it was estimated that she had been killed about 14 days earlier but she was also never identified. Victim 5 was more decomposed and partially mummified compared to victim 4. She had a white cloth around her neck which indicated maybe signs of strangulation. Her cause of death couldn't be like, couldn't be certain but they did say that asphyxiation could be one of the causes. Victim 5 was one of the first 2006 victims to be identified. She was identified as 33-year-old Evelyn Dube, who was, a Zimbabwean citizen, who was a Zimbabwean citizen. She had come to um, the township to go sell like pods and stuff. So it's believed that she was lured away by someone under the guise of like them wanting to buy the stuff that she was selling and then just never returned. She was identified by her aunt who was able to identify her by the clothes that she was wearing. Victim 6 was found only 9 days later. She too had kitchen sets like found next to her and her body was positioned in a weird way. It's almost as though like she was sitting on a chair and then someone pushed her down and then she just never moved from that position. So like, like she felt like this, like her head is here and like her backside is like facing upwards. So that's how she was found. She had a clear ligature mark around her neck but it was a very thin line and it was assumed that she was strangled with a shoelace. Her cause of death was consistent with ligature strangulation and a vaginal swab was also taken to see if there was any DNA. She was also later identified as Molina Gunduza who was a 25 year old Zimbabwean citizen and she too came to that township to sell pots. She came by taxi but never returned home. Her sister last saw her at 8am and her body was found later that day at 4pm by a passerby. After months of her trying to form a task team that would focus specifically on the murder case, the murder series that was currently happening, the task team was finally formed on the 22nd of May and to his surprise he was the head task 
leader member and for him this is one of the reasons why this case stands out to him because as like a police psychologist or like profiler they're not usually the head detectives detectives of the case so for him this was like a very big thing but also came with a lot of pressure a couple of days later on the 29th of may this task team had their first like briefing so they had pictures up on the walls of the victims the locations and they basically just talked about the victims where they were found and then they decided that it would be better if they all went to go visit like the different locations where the bodies were found just so that everyone could have a better understanding of the cases so after this they went to the quarry where the other bodies were found i think victim four and five were found so they got there they got to the gate and then the security guard came up to the window and he asked them like oh what are you doing here and they replied that they were there for the like a murder investigation and the security guard replied like he was surprised that they had come they had arrived so quickly and they were kind of like surprised like why he would say that so they drove in and the security guard pointed to two guys that were like standing on like the side of him I'm assuming and then he was like oh these are the two guys that found the body and Harrod and the person he was with were very confused like uh, maybe he's talking about the body that was found like a couple of weeks earlier and then after the security guard pointed one of the guys and was like okay he'll show you where he found the body so the guy got into the car they drove closer to the quarry they got out and as they were walking i think it's called like the boulder of the quarry they were walking they were walking and then the guy pointed towards a body that they had literally found only minutes before which was a total coincidence that they had found a body there so what happened was that these two men were walking around they found this body they went to the security guard to go tell him the security guard called the police officers to say there was a body and literally within minutes Karad and his partner arrived and Karad also explains this in the book that this was also a blessing in disguise because most of the time if there's no detective like at the crime scene where they're like quarantined off and I don't know like collect evidence and stuff most of the time they don't do the right things that they're supposed to so because they arrived they were like the first people on the scene this was very helpful for them so they could also just like watch over how everything is done this was the seventh victim to be found she laid among the large boulders and she was very decomposed and partially mummified she was dressed in a pink skirt and matching top and her skirt was pulled up to her waist the victim's distal fingers were removed but she was never identified so what happens is when they remove the um the victim's like fingers is that when a body's like very decomposed they're able to remove like the layer of skin of their fingerprints and almost put it on their hands like a glove and this makes it easier to get fingerprints and things like that but unfortunately she was never identified so after they discovered the seventh victim the task team had two main goals the first goal was to try and identify as many victims as they could and the second goal was to like go through any cases and dockers they could find of cases that might be related to their suspect so maybe the suspect had tried to kidnap a woman and murder her but she managed to escape and she reported it to the police but like obviously they couldn't find more information about it or just try to discover any more victims that 
were never identified or never linked to the case. On the 31st of May, so a couple of days after the seventh victim was found, they decided to have search and rescue dogs um, go through the area as well as SAP's helicopters to fly over the area just to see if they could find any more bodies that were like probably hidden or anything like that. And even though this wasn't fruitful, like they didn't find anything, it was still helpful in the sense that if any other bodies were to be found at a later stage, it will help them have like a cutoff date of when this body would have most likely been left. So they knew that they did the search on the 31st of May. So if a body was found maybe within the next week, they would know that, okay, she probably disappeared on this day and it would make it easier for them to go through missing persons reports and identify the victims. Two months later, the eighth victim was found on the 31st of July. This victim was found only wearing a black bra that had been lifted to expose her breasts and she was in an advanced stage of decomposition. There were also three penetrating skin wounds which were round and pin-like and they thought maybe it was like a screwdriver that she was used, like that was used to stab her. Her cause of death could not be identified, but fortunately, this victim was later identified as Selena Mtlangu. Selena was reported missing on the 29th of May. She had went to Centurion from Kwamtanga on the 22nd of May after someone named Jabu had offered her a job. So she went there with her boyfriend. Her boyfriend's name was Jerry Mtlangu. Um, it says boyfriend in the book, but they have the same surname, so I don't know. Maybe they just aren't related but they have the same surname but yeah I thought it was very weird but basically they went down to um, Centurion and after this Jabu um, said that Selena must go to his place and that um, they'll like discuss everything so she left her boyfriend Jerry there and a couple of moments later she came back told him that everything was fine he didn't have to worry and that she'd see him later at home but unfortunately she never did make it home. After discovering this body, Harriet was like walking around the area trying to find more evidence and literally had he walked like 20, like 20 meters further than where he stopped, he would have found the second body that was found that day. And even though he wasn't the one to have found the body, it was still found the same day, which is good news. And this was the ninth victim. This victim was wearing a white bra that had been pulled up. She also had on ankle boots and socks. She also had multiple pin-like stab, like stab wounds. She had five to her neck, 12 to the chest, five to the abdomen, and some of the stab wounds had gone through her heart, um, which was most likely the cause of death. But unfortunately, she too was never identified. On the 8th of August, a mass funeral was held for the five unidentified victims and about 300 people attended this and it was later discovered that the suspect also attended this funeral. After a couple of weeks of searching for Selena's boyfriend Jerry, they finally found him at the Mamalodi shopping centre. So they received a tip-off that he was there, so they went there, they found him. They found out that he lived in a hostel in Mamalodi as well, so they went to go search his room for any evidence of Selena or like her cell phone, but they found nothing. But they were still a bit like suspicious of him because obviously they couldn't find him for weeks after his girlfriend had went missing so they took his dna ran it against that that they found from the other victims and it wasn't a match 
On the 1st of September, the 10th victim was found. She was discovered at 9 a.m. that morning and she was the freshest body that was found. So basically, um, that's good news because it would make it easier for the autopsy and to identify the victim. And by freshest body, I mean that um, she probably wasn't deceased for a long period of time before she was found. She was identified as 38-year-old Elizabeth Mabasa, who was a domestic helper in the Mwepruf area, which is in Pretoria East, and she was last seen on the 30th of August. Her cause of death was strangulation, blood force trauma, as well as blood loss. It was also discovered that she was about 10 to 12 weeks pregnant when she was killed. Carrot explains that the South African law says that a fetus or even a full-term unborn baby um, is not considered a person. So if someone is to murder a mother and her unborn child, then the person cannot be the person can't be charged for two murders, they're only charged for the mother's murder, which I thought was very interesting. So even if like the child, even if the woman is like nine months pregnant, the guy can't be charged for double homicide. Damn, double homicide. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Finally, on the 5th of September, the task team received a phone call from the SABS Forensic Science Laboratory and they had a DNA match. So remember the last victim that was found in 2002, the one that was wearing um, bright red pants? They took a DNA swab from her and her DNA matched um, a case that had happened in the same year that she was found, September 2002, and it was a case of an attempted rape of a little girl. So at the time of the case, the suspect's DNA had been taken and loaded into the DNA system for like DNA analysis, and this suspect was identified as Richard Jabulani Nyauza, and he had attempted to rape his girlfriend's He's often at the time's nine-year-old daughter. He has spent some time in jail because he didn't qualify for bail. And eventually he went to trial for the attempted murder of this nine-year-old girl at the magistrate's court. So at the time, the magistrate's court only had a limited amount of sentences that they could hand out. So they did find him guilty. And after this, the case was referred to the high court. And at the high court, they basically, they basically overturned this guilty verdict and he was basically found not guilty at the end of it and then he was released in November 2005. So this explains the hiatus that happened between the 2002 murders and the 2005 murders. After having Richard as a suspect, they did run his DNA um, against all the other victims that were found in 2006 and it was a match. So they knew they had his guy and literally after they found out that he was incarcerated for a certain amount of time and was released, this also just showed that sometimes you can go to prison but you can't be rehabilitated back into society. Literally less than two weeks after Richard was released from prison, he murdered again. So after finding out Richard was their guy, they went to um, the woman, his ex-girlfriend, to see whether she knew where he lived, and she did. So 
um, Richard lived on the eastern edge of that township and where he lived was barely one kilometer away from all the cases all the crime scenes from the 2006 murders so he lived in an RDP house when he was arrested his brother lived there for some time but once he was released his brother went to his own home and then he lived there so they were tracking Selena who is victim number eight cell phone sorry they were tracking her cell phone and they could see that they could basically just see where it was going so they put someone um, at a Shabin, which was close to where Richard lived. And then the other task team members were at a garage that was like really close to where Richard lived. So they were following the cell phone and it was like going, it was going, and then it got to the house. So two men got outside, they went into the house and they came back outside. And this is when it was time for them to strike. So they went and arrested the two men and it was Richard as well as his brother. Even though they didn't think that Richard's brother had anything to do with the cases, um, it was just like a precautionary measure to arrest him as well as search his house too. And they searched Richard's house and they found him, like he was holding a Nokia phone and it wasn't Selena's phone, but it was Selena's SIM card inside the phone, which is why they were able to track it. They searched the house, searched the house. They found Elizabeth's handbag as well as her phone. And all in all, they found four cell phones that didn't belong to Richard. Richard had been living with his girlfriend at the time. And once she was told um, what was happening, she was quite shocked to hear that this was the man that she loved and was like living with her. Like he was capable of doing all of this. Okay, so now we're going to circle back to the DNA evidence. So remember the woman with the red pants um, where the DNA that they found in her matched to Richard's one. So her DNA was put into the DNA system in January of 2004. So two years after her murder. And literally a month later, it matched to Richard so in February 2004 mind you he was still in prison at the time and this was purely a coincidence that his DNA was still in the system because apparently if someone um, is in prison for like attempted rape most of the time the DNA isn't put into um, a DNA analysis system but in this case it was which is like great news um, probably never happens but in this case it did but the problem comes um, the problem is that no one was managing, no one was managing the system. So there's no actual system in place to see that DNA matches with this person and then matches with this person. And this is why this went unnoticed for two years and seven months. Because if they had if they had, had someone managing the system and seeing DNA matches, then he probably, Richard would have most likely never been released from prison because he probably would have went to trial for the murder of the woman in the red pants. But this didn't happen. So it's just literally a flaw in our system that he was released and went on to murder 11 more people. Richard claims to have written down all the names of his victims and he keeps the paper in his Bible but there have been numerous searches of his home and this Bible has never been found. Richard claims that the reason why he murdered some of 
these women is because they had given him AIDS. I should note that Richard was HIV positive, so he was basically just like blaming women for his status. So at this point in time, Richard is in prison. So he went to prison in about like the beginning of September, but on the 17th of September, the 11th victim was found. And this was so stressful for the task team because they thought, like they knew they had the right guy. So there were other reasons that maybe there was a copycat killer or like a victim of opportunity. Um, maybe he had an accomplice that they didn't know about. Or um, Carrot explains that sometimes when there's like a serial like a serial murderer going around, some people will see that as an opportunity for them to like kill someone and then dump them in the same place where most of the victims are found so that that so that it could be pinned on the serial murderer and not them so they thought that was happening so this was a very stressful situation and they found this woman but fortunately like fortunately for the case she hadn't been placed there recently um she had been there for a couple of months they were able to identify this woman as 23 year old Quena Rosina Musvana and she had been reported missing on the 6th of May 2006. Because she was killed during the winter time, um, her body was more preserved which made it easier for the autopsy as well as to identify her. So what happened um, is that Rosina lives, okay she lived next door where Richard worked and on the day she went missing she went to go buy meat and then at around 5 p.m she called her mother and told her mother that she received like some guy offered her a job so she's going to be a little bit late but unfortunately she never made it home that night so now richard's in prison and a couple of weeks later in october harrod receives a phone call from the boom saps which is basically a little town in the northwest province and it's between carltonville fentersdorp machalisburg and rustenburg and basically this man tells harrod that like you have the man i want so i'm coming to fetch him for attempted murder which for the task team is literally mind-blowing so basically what happened is that 37 year old Jane Theramani was on her way to Botswana on the 17th of August 2006. So as she's on her way there's a blue bikey that stops next to her and this man asks where she's going. She says she's going to Botswana and he offers her a lift but says that he has to stop at a farm to drop off some things. So after this they do actually stop at the farm and witnesses do see her in the backy. After this they leave so they're going down the road and then he just turns into like some random some random road on the side and then he gets out and goes to her side of the door opens the passenger door takes a screwdriver and starts stabbing her in the chest multiple times he then tells her to get into like the bikey at the back lying face down takes her shoelace and ties her hand and then ties her hands then he tied her body with ropes and like some underwear that he found in her bag and they drove for a long period of time until they got to Centurion and then he like gets out the car goes back to her and starts stabbing her in the neck I mean no not in the neck above the eye with the screwdriver again then he just takes her out the car and like um takes her underwear off and then throws her in like the furrow 
and then drives off. I'm assuming maybe he thought that she was deceased but fortunately she wasn't and she was found just walking around the area and she was still tied up which is so sad and unfortunately at the time she was pregnant and because of the trauma she did miscarry so at trial Richard's defense was so crazy to me but the first reason he has for why his DNA was found in most of the women um, is because he says in 2006 he had like the sexual charm basically and he slept with hundreds of women which is why they found his DNA and the second reason like one of his other defenses defense um, um, is that he just gambles a lot and that's why he had some of their phones you know it's the spoils of gambling is what he said despite Richard's defense he was found guilty and Richard Jabulanya Yuza was sentenced to 16 terms of life imprisonment for the 16 murders, 80 years for 4 rapes, 45 years for 3 robbery charges with aggravated circumstances and 15 years for attempted murder. So in total he was sentenced to 16 life terms and 140 years. Unfortunately, only five of the 16 victims of Richard were ever identified.